All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad y'all are here. Welcome to the Story Church. If we don't know each other yet, I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at the Story, and it really means a lot that you've taken time out of your weekend to join us, especially if you're new here. Um, this is a really, uh, a really extraordinary Sunday. It's a really special day, and, and if you're brand new here, you might not quite be able to grasp what exactly this day means and what the announcement that I'm about to share means to those who call the Story home already. But uh, if you are new, I just invite you to humor me for a second as, as we share some, some insider info and about what's coming next for the Story Church, and uh, we'll get to the message in just a minute. Um, so, I don't know, it's been seven months now, a little over seven months, since that day in uh, May, I know it was May, May the 4th specifically, um, when I had a, a, a very consequential meeting with uh, leaders at, uh, at St. Luke's, with Dr. Pace and, and others, where I was informed about uh, the decision that had been reached um, uh, among St. Luke's leaders about the story's future. So it's a lot, of, a lot of backstory there I won't get into, but that was the day that I realized that the plans I had in store for this church and for my family, because our life is all intertwined with, I mean, Gio and I are both pastors here, and so our kids are, this is like our home away from home, and so it, re- it hit us. What are we going to do? And I remember it was May the 4th because I am a Star Wars nerd, and it ruined Star Wars Day for me. May the 4th be with you. Anyone? Okay, just a few of us. Okay, so I will never forget that day. And in the seven months since, I've had this roller coaster experience where a lot of, a lot of highs and, and a lot of lows um, because of all the uncertainty. Y'all, people think I'm exaggerating. We had no plan whatsoever to leave uh, this campus and nowhere, nowhere to go is what I mean to say, really. We didn't have anything worked out. And so how in the world, I thought, how in the world is God going to come through in this situation where, you know, we need a, a place for this church to meet that's, that's in this area, in one of the most ex- expensive parts of Houston, where, you know, uh, landlords don't typically lease to churches and we don't have the money to buy anything and we're not even a legal entity. Like, how, what, are, what is God going to do to provide the story's main campus with a place that's not only big enough, but that's affordable and accessible uh, and has enough parking and all these problems that we often have in Houston? Like, what's going to happen? And I confess to you, and I do offer this as a confession, there were moments where this pastor started to lose faith. Like, the fear set in. And I, and I really lost hope at times because we would get to the end of the line with a deal that we thought was going to come through and then it would fall through. And real estate guys are like, yep, I know, what you, know exactly what you mean. But, but that's, that was our life for the last seven months. Well, I'm so glad to be able to be here today now that we have three Sundays left in this building. <laughs> this is one of them. We have today and the 12th and the 19th, and then there's no more Sundays here. Christmas Eve will be our last services here in this building. And now that we're down to the wire, I'm glad to be able to share with y'all how good God is and how incredibly he has come through for us here and how I never should have doubted him. I should have known all along. There's one more, one more way we learn that lesson that God comes through in his time and the place he has for us is perfect. Like I couldn't have dreamed up a better situation. Okay, so um, I want to share a little bit about this place with you. It is a, an empty church building. We will be the only inhabitants in this church building. We're not sharing it with anybody else. 
Um, it is almost 15,000 square feet of space compared to 5,000 that we have here in this building. So we'll be tripling our, our square footage uh, footprint. And, uh, and it's only three miles away from our current location. Um, it is situated in the museum district, in the heart, of, in the beautiful heart of the museum district. So we will soon have the Stories Museum District campus to call home. It was built in 1939, um, so it's pre-World War II, and uh, it is absolutely stunning facility, needs a little TLC on the inside, but the curb appeal cannot be denied. And it is surrounded by vast amounts of green space. So it sits on its own city block. And if you're trying to locate it in your mind, our museum district's address is going to be 4910 Montrose Boulevard. So it's right across the street from the new Glacelle School of Art at the Museum of Fine Arts um, that they've been working on forever, and it's been complete now for a year or so. It's absolutely stunning. You know the, the old Houston bean? It's not actually that old. The Chicago bean's old. The Chicago bean's like this. And Houston was like, no, it looks better like this. So we built our own bean, you know what I'm saying? It's right across the street from that. And, uh, and tons of green space. The only hang-up we had was parking. There was no parking lot associated with this property whatsoever, which could explain how the church that was there died. Like, you had no parking in Houston, Texas. We were able, by the grace of God, to come to terms on a garage, a 10-level garage, which is just across a side street from this building where we will have full access on Sunday. So plenty of parking. The lease amount is so incredibly affordable, um, and, and it allows us to uh, function as a church and to start making plans for what will happen after this, because we will only be here in this location probably for three years max. We might, might have more than that. We'll see what God has in store for us, but, but for three years max. Let me tell you a couple of reasons I am so extraordinarily excited about this. The first reason is because for the first time in the story's history, we're going to have space in the same facility where we worship for children's ministries and student ministries to meet and gather and learn and grow together. So parents, you'll no longer have to face the incredible maze of trying to figure out where to take your kids, where to find your kids after church. Like you have to brave the elements walking across the parking lot and Hurricane Harvey's having out there and you're like, just go across the lot. Well, thank you for the hospitality. Like you won't have to worry about any of that anymore. We'll all be in the same building under the same roof, learning and growing together. And the second thing I'm excited about is how perfect this space is for us in terms of our mission. And I'll explain quickly because I do have a sermon to preach, all right? <laughs> So the mission of the story is to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. And I want to say this as gently and kindly as I can, but I can think of few areas in our city where more non-religious people live than the museum district. It's an incredibly skeptical part of town. It is uh, immediately surrounded, not just with the arts and museum district, but all kinds of high-rise apartments where single adults and transplants from other cities live. Rice University is right there. The medical center is right there. We've always done really well with those populations because we try to approach the gospel uh, in a way that skeptics and, and intellectual people can, uh, can stomach it. So I, I'm, I'm pumped about what this could mean for the story's future and our growth and our impact. And I just cannot tell you enough how excited that I am about the story's uh, new campus, our museum district campus, coming in January of 2022. Are you all excited? I am so excited. 
So we signed the lease on Thursday. This all just happened. Y'all thought we were keeping a secret all the time. We were not. We were sweating. We signed the lease on Thursday, y'all. And then all day Saturday, Giovanna and I were just like at the building, pulling up carpets, just raw, just trying to demo the, the space to get it ready for, for y'all, right, for the story. And, and people were like, you should have called us. We would have come and help. And we were like, we needed the time just to destroy some stuff for a day, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was cathartic, okay? And, uh, and, and now the, the real work begins. Here's the deal. We're going to be announcing the launch schedule for the new building. It probably won't be ready first Sunday of January. So we might have a few days, a few weeks there where we don't have a museum district campus or a district uh, a campus anywhere close to here. We'll be at Timber Grove on the 2nd of January to celebrate their one-year birthday. Timber Grove is a year old, January 2nd. So we'll be over there, multiple services at Timber Grove that day. And then we'll need to stay in touch with you um, uh, to, to let y'all know what, what date uh, we'll be launching. I anticipate mid to late January will be our grand opening in the museum district. But... And between now and then, uh, y'all will need to be sure to sign up for those emails because communication is going to be so paramount as we won't have uh, our typical rhythm gathering in this space after the, the uh, Christmas Eve services. So be sure to go to the story.church slash next chapter to sign up to receive the email communications. Otherwise, I'm afraid we'll lose contact with you and, and you may not know exactly what's happening. The other thing I'm, I'm overwhelmed about is the response we've gotten to the transition fund Y'all started giving to the transition fund before you even knew where we were going. We almost met the goal we set, which I thought was too high. There's no way people are going to give to this with all this uncertainty. We almost met the goal before we announced the place. Y'all were giving to a campus. You had no idea where it would be. It could have been the story Galveston or the story Spring or whatever. You were like, we're in. And I love that about you. And it just, it just I think it says something about who we are as a community and I can't wait to see, like, as, as now that people know where we're headed, like, how, how much people are going to invest and, and uh, put their hearts in their, in, 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 into this new campus. And so if you haven't voiced your support yet for the transition fund, we invite you. Hope, I hope that you will do that. This is our, the main engine for our um, budgeting as we start fresh as a new entity, as a new legal entity, January 1. And so uh, you don't need to give your money right away. We do need to know kind of what you're planning to give between now and the end of the year. Some of y'all have already done this. Thank you so much. If you haven't, the story.church slash transition or the phone number is the easiest way. It's just your first and last name and the amount you plan to invest in the transition fund between now and December 31st. Okay? And then we'll get back to you with all the details. Good? Kind of want to open up for questions, but that will take the whole rest of the time. 4910 Montrose is going to be our new uh, HQ uh, for our museum district starting in 2022. I invite y'all to go by and see it. We'll be having all kinds of other events, prayer circles around the building and eventually in the building and maybe a housewarming party of some kind and, and we're gonna do it right. It's gonna be awesome. So can't wait to see what God does next. Okay, uh, as I said, I do have a message to share. It may seem slightly anticlimactic given the, the hugeness of that announcement, but we wanna learn about Jesus today. And, uh, and again, this is our, our mission right, as, as a story church. And so we are in part two of the series called Overflowing with Thankfulness, which is a phrase from the book of Colossians in the New Testament, Overflowing with Thankfulness is. And so this is a Christmas series, but it's also an exploration of this book called Colossians. And for you church rats, like you kids that have been in church your whole life, that may seem weird, a Christmas series about Colossians. Doesn't seem like a Christmas book at all. I would suggest that it's absolutely the best Christmas book in all the New Testament. 
um, because the whole point of Colossians is to inspire Christians to wrestle with the most pivotal question in all of human history, I believe. It's definitely the most pivotal question in Christian history, and that is this. Who is Jesus? And why should anyone care today? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And why should anyone care? Now, Paul wrote most of his letters in the middle of the first century. So from, let's say, 46 up till 65 AD was when Paul was writing his letters. He wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books, and they were all personal correspondence between him and the churches. And one of them was Colossians. And listen to how he describes who Jesus is in Colossians chapter 1. Okay, and ask yourself, who, who is he describing here? What's he saying about this man, Jesus? This is what he wrote. First, uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God. God, the firstborn, uh, the, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. In Jesus of Nazareth, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now, what that means is Jesus was the first to be resurrected from the dead, and we all will follow suit one day. But he was the first, the firstborn among the dead. So that in everything, Jesus might have the supremacy. He's first. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of words from somebody who was a contemporary of Jesus. Probably, I would guess Paul was probably six years younger than Jesus. That's the best estimate. And so he lived in the same time as Jesus, this man, this rabbi, and, and this is what he said about him. Now, what does that mean? Look, we're finally to a point now where all of honest, reputable academia and historians, etc., they are all finally acknowledging that a man named Jesus of Nazareth must have existed. He must have been a historical figure, and he must have really taken up time and place. And there are some facts about Jesus's existence that we all agree on, Christian and non-Christian alike. I just want you to know this has not always been the case, not in the West, where during the period known as modernity, intellectuals and academics started to think maybe we're smarter than the people who wrote the Bible. We know more about Jesus given the other clues and historical whatever that we can probably surmise that Jesus could have been a fictional mythological character. When I went to college 20 years ago, when I was in college and seminary, I'm dating myself, a little more than 20 years ago, gosh. So I was taught, or I was given at least the distinct impression that it was possible that Jesus was a, a mythological figure dreamed up by these Jews who were trying to 
um, assimilate to a Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, there was a pantheon of gods and goddesses that were mostly imaginary. They were dreamt up, or, or maybe they were based on some historical figure, but the person that they became when they were deified and promoted to the pantheon of gods and goddesses was nothing like the person that actually lived and breathed and walked the earth hundreds of years before. Okay? So I was taught that maybe Jesus fits into that category. And I actually believed it. I bought that. I talked about how it's possible Jesus never really existed. And I still called myself a Christian during that time, somehow, even though I said it was possible Jesus didn't really exist. Because even if Jesus didn't really exist, I thought his ideas are real. And the, the, the movement of justice in the world is real. So let's get on board with that, whether or not there's a historical figure behind it. Well, now we've gotten to a point where every honest academic, historian, etc., who's reputable at all, admits that there is a guy named Jesus of Nazareth who was a Jewish rabbi who worked in construction and who built a following late in his life and who made claims that got him in trouble with the Roman Empire, claims like, I'm the king, <laughs> which you can't say in the Roman Empire, and uh, at least not without their permission. Someone else did, King Herod, right? But he had Rome's permission to be a puppet king among the Jews. But Jesus said I was a king without their permission, and that's why he died on the cross. His crucifixion is another historical fact that just about everyone agrees on. He really did die as a criminal on a Roman cross around the year 30 AD. This is agreed upon, Christians and non-Christians alike. The final fact that everyone agrees upon is his burial. Interestingly enough, of all the facts about his life, his burial is the most historically attested one. There are more sources attesting to his burial, his having been buried in the tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea after his death, than there are about any other element of his life. I just think that's, a, that's actually a really important point that I don't have time to get into today. Another sermon, we'll get into why that matters so much. But these are the facts that we know and everyone agrees on about Jesus' life. Beyond that, there's very little agreement about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who changed many of our lives. Even a lot of Christians aren't quite sure what category to put Jesus in. There are a lot of Christians who want to say, well, Jesus is my God, but he's not the only God. I hear that more and more, especially in denominational Christians, like, like, like Methodists, my, my tribe, Methodist Church, for example. I hear more and more like, let's not be offensive. Let's not pretend like Jesus is set apart. Let's, be, let's coexist, like the bumper sticker says with all symbols on it, right? Let's just be neighbors who respect other people's religions. So let's say Jesus is one way of talking about God. He's not, he's not exclusively or uniquely God. And there's this, there's this tension there, right? This tension did not exist among the first Christians. It certainly didn't exist for Paul, who was crystal clear in his writings about Jesus, right? So, so what, do we, what do we make of, of, these, uh, of, of these different uh, perception, per, uh, perspectives on Jesus? Now, the fact that there's little agreement about the details of Jesus' life beyond those three or four that I mentioned doesn't keep people from really liking Jesus. And this was shocking to me when I came across this statistic, but Jesus is, among American adults, Jesus is second only to Abraham Lincoln in terms of his approval rating. So 92% of American adults in the 21st century admire Jesus of Nazareth. 
Isn't that interesting? 92%. Like, that's more than Biden, Trump, and Congress all together. Like, this one guy who lived 2,000 years ago has his 92% approval rating. But as optimistic as I would like to be about that, I don't think that tells the whole story either. Because then more recent data has come out and been published, for example, in Newsweek magazine, where we learn that among American adults these days, only 52, or I'm sorry, 52% of American adults say that Jesus was just a great teacher and not really God. Hmm. So what do we do with that? So we have 92% of American adults who say that they are cool with Jesus, they admire him. But 48%, only 48% of American adults say that Jesus is God. Isn't that weird? And to add more complexity to this, 67 or so percent of the American population is uh, Christian. Two-thirds of Americans are Christians. But only 48% of Americans believe Jesus is God? What's with that gap? How did we get there? And some of y'all are like, why is this even a big deal? You can be a Christian and just look up to Jesus. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a minute because I do believe there's well-intentioned people who go, I just like Jesus's ideals. I don't need him to be exclusively God. And, and there are some people who go, hey, I heard that Jesus never actually called himself God in the first place. I had this professor once, or I had this barista at Starbucks who seems really smart, or my second cousin, whatever, Jeff, at Thanksgiving told me that Jesus never said, I am God. And so it would seem to me, as a logical person that I am, that I can take the logical stuff Jesus said, love your enemies, the good Samaritan, the golden rule, and, and leave out all the stuff that's clearly mythological, the stuff that no logical person would believe and, and the stuff that his followers probably, well-intentioned, they added on posthumously to his legend, right? And this is, a, this is increasingly common. And, and, I, and I think I want to acknowledge, first of all, that if that's where you're at, I don't want to be unfair to you. I, I, I do want to acknowledge that there have been myths about Jesus that have developed over time. There are mythological ideas about Jesus that people have accepted. They've accepted them up to today. Christians accept them up to today. Christians accept and repeat them most often every Christmas up to today. And what I mean is this whole Christmas pageant narrative that we've come up with, the Charlie Brown Christmas story, is full of mythological additions to the actual biblical text. Are some of y'all ready to just really hate me for a moment? I'm about to blow up Christmas for some of you, okay? What you need to know is the Christmas story we often tell is not the one the Bible tells. Because people, well-meaning people, added in to try and fill the gaps that, that the Bible didn't share to try and just make sense of the whole story. I think maybe sometime along the way, maybe five or 600 years after Jesus's life on earth, maybe some church was doing some Christmas play and there weren't enough parts for all the kids. <laughs> and so they had to start making up characters for the other kids because every kid needs a part. It's like every kid gets a ribbon, right? It's like everybody needs a part or their mom's going to be mad. And so this is what else happened. And, and, and this is such a part of our lexicon now that we don't even see it. 
And it's so, such a part of our, the stories we tell at Christmas that it's actually made its way into places you might not expect. For example, a few years ago, I was reading a children's Bible to my kids because they're preacher's kids and they're supposed to know the Bible. And so I read them the Bible every night when they were little and I would read from children's Bibles. Parents, hear me now, like the children's Bibles, you got to watch them because they are not the actual biblical texts translated. They are like people trying to make the Bible stories palatable for children. And this page is an actual picture that I took of the last page I ever read to my kids out of this children's Bible, <laughs> and I'm going to explain why. I know you can't see the text, so I'm going to read it to you. I just wanted you to know this actually happened. Like, I took this picture a few years ago. It says, and you try to find the mythologies added into this children's Bible, okay? Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem, the town of Joseph's ancestor, David. And by the time they arrived, they were tired and desperately wanted to find a room for the night, for it was clear that the time had come for Mary's baby to be born. But the town was filled to bursting. Every inn was full. At last, an innkeeper showed them to a stable, and there Mary's baby was born. She wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him gently on clean straw in a manger. Mary and Joseph looked down upon their son with joy, and blah, blah, blah. the last part's right. Okay, I'll leave that alone. So they, there's at least three different mythological ideas in this children's Bible telling of the Christmas story. <laughs> The first one that I noticed is just this whole birth emergency situation where Mary and Joseph are riding like on the, the, on the back of a donkey or something. You know, we always picture it like Joseph's walking, Mary's riding a donkey, nine months pregnant. Sounds awful. And the minute they cross into Bethlehem, she's like, uh-oh, this donkey's wet. Like, <laughs> my water broke. Joseph, we got to find a place. And Joseph's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? The Red Roof Inn is full. Holiday Inn is full. Like, where are we going to go? Y'all, Bethlehem was a town of 200 people. Like Red Lake, Texas, where I grew up. You know how many inns we had? Zero. <laughs> we had zero inns. And I doubt they had any professional inns in, well, I'll get to the inns in a second. But first, birth emergency, okay? So, this idea that it all happened so fast. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says they had to go to Bethlehem. That part's true. Then it says, and, and while they were there, this is very casually, you know, and while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. It didn't happen that same night. It could have happened days or weeks or even months after they arrived in Bethlehem. Remember, they had people in Bethlehem, their family. Part of their family was there. They didn't have to search for some, for some frantic place to have a baby in a pinch. They had people there. Even if it was an emergency, they probably wouldn't have gone to the inn. And that's the second part. This is where y'all are going to be like, my Bible says inn. Pastor, if you have a King James Bible, it's going to say inn. This one's a little harder to explain, but let me give it a shot. When they translated the King James Bible into English, what they were trying to do was make sense of this word kataluma, which is a Greek word that they translated into inn. Now, interestingly, the same word appears earlier in the same Gospel of Luke. But instead of in, it's translated as upper room. The upper room where they had the Last Supper, right? Jesus told them to go and prepare the kataluma for the Seder meal, okay? Well, when it came time to give birth, the same word appeared in the original texts. And, and they were like, what, is, what does this mean? There was, no room, there was no room for them in the upper room. Like there was no room to have a baby in the upper room. The translators couldn't make sense of it. And so they editorialized a little and said, in the inn, because in, you know, 16th century England, that made sense. 
But the word is kataluma. The word never meant in. The word means upper room. And what it meant, and what we know now because of archaeological digs, is that the houses in first century Bethlehem were caves. They were multi-layered caves. The upper room was where the the clean life happened where people lived their lives according to the Levitical law. Down below is where like unclean stuff was, like the farm animals when it was inclement weather outside. So the idea that there were animals out around the birth of Jesus is true, but it wasn't out in some stable owned by some innkeeper who never makes an appearance in the Bible at all. The old cranky guy who's like, no vacancy, you know? <laughs> But man, we put that in there and we work it in our Christmas plays every year. Now, there's all kinds of this stuff um, that you can probably point to uh, throughout Christian history. And I don't want this to raise any doubts in your mind because it's very, very easy to discern truth from myth. Just go read the Bible for yourself. Just not that Bible. Any other Bible but that one. You can read the Bible and discern what actually is true about Jesus and what he said and what he did and who he is. And, and the, the parts of Scripture that speak of Jesus were written in such close proximity to his life on the earth that everyone agrees actually happened that there's no way myth could explain it. It takes generations for legends and myths to, to evolve. The eyewitnesses have to all die before everyone starts to believe the myths. But the books of the New Testament were all written within a lifetime of Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay? So uh, it's not so easy to explain this away. All right? So um, if you're someone or if you love someone who struggles with the idea of Jesus being uniquely God incarnate and you'd rather have a halfway Jesus, I just want to help you because I've been there. I just want to help you think it all the way through because I know you're a reasonable person. I don't think you're thinking through the ramifications of your thought process. For example, you're suggesting that the people who lied about Jesus's true identity, who, by the way, are the same people who wrote the rest of the New Testament that you say includes the parts you like about Jesus. So the stuff you've find reputable and respectable about Jesus is passed down to us through the same sources, the same people as the ones you say are basically guilty of the most heinous hoax ever pulled on the world, saying Jesus was something he's not. And so this idea that we can pick and choose and say, I like this about Jesus, but not that. We're basically saying that these sources that gave us the New Testament are simultaneously right and wrong, respectable and ridiculous, I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense. The other thing I think to keep in mind is, well, Jesus never actually said, I am God in, those, in that order, okay? Granted. But listen, there's way too much evidence that Jesus absolutely believed he was God. Like, there's, you cannot, in good faith, read the Gospels and say Jesus didn't believe he was God. Like, he, he said, I saw, I was there when Satan fell from heaven. I saw it. And his followers were like, what did he just, he, that happened in primordial history. What? He saw Satan fall from heaven. And then he said, well, right before I came here, I was talking to Abraham, and he said to tell you all hi. <laughs> what did he say? Abraham, the one who died 2,000 years before. Okay. And then he said things more directly, like, uh, I and the Father are one. Right? And then... Uh, maybe most tellingly, if none of that is direct enough, Jesus constantly let people 
devout Jewish people come and worship him. Countless times in the Gospels, they came and they didn't just follow him, they worshiped him. And any decent Jewish rabbi who's just a rabbi would say, you guys got to stop worshiping me. Read the commandments. It's like the first one. You can't worship a man, only worship God. Never once did he say stop. He welcomed their worship. He let them worship him as God in his life on the earth. And these things just can't be explained away so simply. And, and all of this has such massive ramifications for us. I'm not sure we can quite understand it, but I do want you to see how we can't so easily explain away. It's like, it's like the cognitive dissonance of that, those statistics earlier. It's like saying, I like Jesus, but he's not God. It's so, <laughs> it's so illogical. You can't say you really admire someone and dismiss their most important characteristic. Like Jesus led with that. So you can't say, I don't like that about him, but I really admire the guy. Like if he wasn't God, he was something really awful. At best, he had deep, deep psychological problems. But at worst, he was willingly misleading. He was a con man. You can't take the presenting characteristic of someone and then dismiss it and say, I, I really admire that. It's like, that would be like saying, I love zebras, but I, I don't really believe in stripes. I don't like the stripes so much. You know, you don't really like zebras. You like horses, probably. Like that's, that's your thing. You're just confused. Like the stripes is what makes them zebras, right? You can't say, I love dogs, but I don't really buy what everybody says, that they're unconditionally loving, but I love dogs. Like, that's who dogs are. Like, they unconditionally love you. You will stop feeding them, and they will still be like, welcome home, I'm so glad you're here, and tell me about your day, you know, and, 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 and they'll beg or whatever, but they still love you unconditionally. You can't say that with any sense. Like, you can't say, I really love cats, but I refuse to acknowledge that they are selfish and psychotic. I can't, I can't, that's their presenting characteristic. It's who they are. So, if you were done with me, so, <laughs> that's just my opinion on that one. But you get what I'm saying? You can't say I love Jesus, but the whole God thing, blech. it doesn't work. That's his core like, characteristic. That's who he is. And that's what we claim to be, at least. And so we have to decide if, if he's telling the truth about himself or not. So, so, so the idea that uh, Jesus didn't say he was God or believe he was God is silly. The third thing I would say is the idea that Jesus' divinity was much later. Uh, it came about during Constantine and, and the whole thing. I think that's uh, obviously false. Not only do we have the New Testament written in the first century, saying Jesus is God, but even if you don't believe the Bible, this is where God got me. Can I tell you where God got me? Out of my skeptical dark days, in 2013, I went to the Holy Land, and I went to Capernaum in the Holy Land, this little village where Jesus sort of HQ'd and during his ministry, and I went down into this archaeological site where the archaeologists are still digging, and they're digging through this first century house church where they clearly worshiped Jesus after his death on a cross. And that's strange in and of itself. Why would, why would devout Jews worship a man who died a criminal's death on a cross? 
but I guess I sort of expected to see that. What I didn't expect to find was evidence outside of the Bible that the first generation of Christians were worshiping Jesus as God during the first half of the first century. So before 50 AD, the reason we know this is that they were writing on the walls of their house church, save us, Jesus, God, Jesus Christ, Lord, Jesus Christ. And these Christians were the ones who knew Jesus personally. It was a small village. Many of them were probably related to him. They knew him. And so what, in that moment, I realized, what could possibly compel Jewish devout peasants to worship a man who died a criminal's death on a cross? What could possibly possess them to worship him posthumously? And I could come up with nothing short of the resurrection that they witnessed. Jesus resurrected after the crucifixion. And that's why they worshiped him as their God before he died and after, because they knew him to be more than just a man. They knew him to be God. Think about the things Paul wrote about Jesus. He wrote Colossians in the middle part of the first century. What did, what did Paul write? How did he describe Jesus? Well, in, first, in Colossians 1, he said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Is that something you say about a really great teacher? He said, in him all things were created, all things created through him and for him. Is that something you say about a religious guru? He said, let's go to the next one. He said that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, like Jesus is fully God. Like, all things will be reconciled through Jesus. Like, listen, the people who knew him best were saying these things about him in real time. And this is not what you say about a teacher that you like. My son is in sixth grade. He loves school, which is weird for me. I don't remember liking school in the sixth grade. I don't remember saying nice things about my teachers in the sixth grade. He comes home raving about his teachers, especially Mr. White, his favorite teacher, Mr. White. And I love that he loves Mr. White, and I love that he learns new things. But if tomorrow afternoon my son comes home talking about Dad, did you know the fullness of God dwells in Mr. White? Did you know Mr. White is the image of the invisible God? Like, that's when I know it's time to, to jump ship from public school, you know? It's time to dip into that, uh, that college fund and get him over to private school a little early. I know, we all know they don't teach weird things in private schools. <laughs> some of y'all, that hit home for some of y'all. Mm, too soon. All right, so, so, uh, clearly, uh, the first Christians uh, believed Jesus was absolutely God. Not a God, the God. And why does this matter? Maybe more importantly, why would Paul need to write a letter reaffirming something all the Christians already knew? That's a good question. And it's because, if you read the rest of Colossians, you'll see he's concerned that they have already started to uh, negotiate with Jesus a little. It's like they're still worshiping Jesus on Sunday, but Monday they're doing other stuff to cover their other bases. Maybe a little offering to the goddess of the harvest just to cover the bases. It's a little dry this year. Make sure, just in case, Jesus isn't enough. Or let's go see our fortune teller, or let's go have our palm read, or witchcraft, or whatever. It's like things that most people today don't get into, although I am seeing more fortune tellers and palm readers and witchcraft around. I'll be honest about that. Maybe that's part of your 
of your philosophy is like, I like Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus more than anything else, but Jesus might not be enough for me, so I'm gonna hedge my bets, take a few chips away from Jesus and spread it around a little bit just to make sure I'm as covered as I can be. That's why Paul wrote this letter, to remind them of Jesus's supremacy and to remind them of the reality that if Jesus is who he said he was, then Jesus must be enough. Jesus must be all we need. If he is truly God among us, if he is Emmanuel, we need nothing else. And if we properly identify Jesus as God in the flesh, the one and only God in the flesh, exclusively, uniquely God incarnate, then what are the implications of that? If he is identified as such, then we must find our identity in him and nothing else. Paul is calling the Colossians back to find their identity in Christ. And the reason this matters for us is because we do the same thing. Maybe not whatever, goddess of the harvest, but we all hedge and spread the chips around so that we can cover as many bases as possible. We do it with our careers. We overwork, we overbook. We put too much hope and stock in our career such that when it comes time to introduce ourselves in public to other people, we don't say, I'm Eric, the devout follower of Jesus Christ. We say, I'm Eric, the lawyer, Eric, the oil and gas, or Eric, whatever. We identify with our careers. All of us. Look, I'm not pointing fingers. It's all of us. Or, or with our social standing and our marital status and our romantic life and our physical appearance. We want everyone to see the best version of us. That's why we have the gram and TikTok, whatever else we're doing to project these images because we, we put too much stock in what people think of us when we really should be living for an audience of one. If Jesus is who he said he was, then he is all we need. And really it comes down to this question or these questions. If, look, if your career went away tomorrow, would it change who you are? Or if the dream you have of getting married, falling in love and getting married, if that never happens and you live your life as a single person your whole life, would that change fundamentally your identity? Or, or if you never are able to have kids like you hope you can, or if you do have kids and they turn out crummy or <laughs> no better than anyone else's kids, which is probably going to happen. Or if you've had kids and you're estranged from them and it's not what you thought it would be. Does it change who you are or how you see yourself? The honest answer is, of course. But I want us all, myself included, to be reminded that if Jesus is legitimate, if he is who he said he was, then he is all we need. And our entire identity and worth should be found in him and what he thinks of us and nothing less. And what does Jesus think of you? Literally, he loved you to death. He saw you as worth dying for. And if that heart that stopped beating on that cross that day is the heart of God, then that's all you need to know. The heart that stopped beating on that cross in 30 AD isn't still dead inside some corpse in some tomb in the Middle East. It beats. It is alive and well, and it beats for you. It is the heart of God. That's the difference Christmas makes, and that's how Christmas changes everything.
you pray with me? Father, thank you for opening your word to us this morning. Thank you for your son, Jesus, in whom we find your true identity and ours. This Christmas, as we all are tempted to project perfection to the world around us, through the parties we attend and the presents we buy and all the ways we put on our a fake smile, and when inside we're nervous or we're falling apart, all the ways we try and project that, Lord, help us to see that all that really matters, all that will ever matter, is who you are and who we are in you. And we thank you, Father, for being our audience of one and for being such a gracious God with us. You will never let us down, as the song said, even when we let you down time and time again. You are faithful and patient and kind. In the heart of Jesus, we see your heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.